please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do come before you this morning so grateful for your love, for your grace, that you would humble yourself in obedience to your Father, that you would come here to partake of our sorrows and our sadness, to bear our sins and iniquities on the cross, to provide for us a salvation that we could have never attained or accomplished or secured on our own. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be at work in us today, that you would give us a humble heart, that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would come to you with a fresh sense and awareness of our need and our weakness. And Lord, renew our faith. Give us a sense of joy and peace in knowing, believing that you are our life, our hope, our salvation. So we pray that you would strengthen now the preaching of your word. May it bear fruit in the lives of your people for your glory. Amen. You can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Obviously, these gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are records for us, stories of the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's not the first time Jesus is spoken of in the scriptures. We actually find Jesus in the Old Testament as well. There are images, there are shadows, there are explicit promises. There's a whole storyline that takes us directly towards Jesus. And in Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah writes that Jesus was a man of sorrows and that he was acquainted with grief. Jesus, the the suffering servant sent by God, was no stranger to the painful realities of life in a fallen world, life in a world that is broken and marred by sin and sickness and death. And Jesus entered into that. He experienced that firsthand. But Jesus did not just come into the world to experience the curse with us. He came into the world to overcome the curse for us. He came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, a message of hope, a message of life, a message of restoration, announcing that sinners could gain entrance into an eternal kingdom where death would be banished, where sin would be eradicated, where every tear would be wiped away. And in Jesus' ministry, as he preached this message of good news, the miracles that he performed, the, the signs and the wonders that he did, they demonstrate not just his divine power, that these are things Jesus can do. That's obviously true. But these miracles also illustrate his redemptive purpose. They are symbolic And and they teach us something about Jesus, that he is compassionate and that he intends, he purposes to bring about a reversal of the curse, that Jesus plans to bring restoration to a fallen world. Sin is what has wrecked everything. And so Jesus comes to die for sinners. Satan is the one who has corrupted and enslaved But Jesus comes, as we saw last week, to conquer and defeat Satan. Death comes for all men. But Jesus comes not only to die, but also rise again to defeat the grave and open a way for us to have eternal life. That's what Jesus is doing. The question is, will those who live in this world recognize him as the Savior? Will we recognize him as the Son of God? 
Will we trust in his power and in his promise? Will we believe? In our text today, we actually have two stories that are sort of woven together. In Luke chapter 8, we'll start in verse 40 and go through the end of the chapter. And in these two stories, we find a healing narrative that's sort of sandwiched between two halves of a resurrection narrative. So there's going to be two crises, there's two desperate people in need, there's two resolutions, but there's one point. And the one simple point is a call to believe in Jesus. What we find in this text, a story that is found in Matthew and Mark and Luke, the truth is this, that the compassionate power of Jesus calls for faith. It's an invitation to believe. We find the setting for this story in verse 40. It says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. As we saw last week, Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee in a storm, and he had calmed the storm and taught his disciples an important lesson. And as soon as he landed on the other side, he's confronted by a man who is possessed by a legion, a whole multitude of demons, and he dealt with that situation. And obviously that instilled great fear in the people there. We looked at that last week. Now he returns back to his home base, to the town of Capernaum. And it says that everyone is waiting for him. There's a heightened expectation when Jesus arrives. Some are no doubt curious to hear him teach. Jesus has been saying some provocative things. Others are excited to see a man who has already healed many of them. Jesus has done many miracles already in this town. And there are others who have not yet experienced his power, but they're there with some desperate needs. And we meet just such a man in verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. This father's desperate plea sort of kicks off for us what is about to take place. The synagogue, which Luke references here, was the local religious center in each town. Many towns had synagogues. It was a place where weekly teaching would take place. There was theological instruction. And it's a place that would also be a center for worship. Pious Jews were regular attendees of the synagogue, showing their devotion to God and to his law. And the ruler of the synagogue, this man Jairus, he was not a rabbi. He was not a priest, per se. He was rather a respected layperson. And each synagogue had to have someone who was in charge, someone who was responsible for arranging the services, scheduling who was going to teach, and sort of overseeing even the care of the facility. So the ruler of the synagogue was a very important man to the, the sort of social fabric of that city. He would have been well-known. He would have been very well-connected. He knew people. But he doesn't go to people. He comes to Jesus. And he's driven here by desperation because his only daughter, who's 12 years old, is at death's door. Obviously, this man has heard, perhaps even seen, that Jesus can heal. And so he implores him, verse 41, to come. This is strong language. Imploring Jesus, begging him, asking him. And the, the, the tense of this verb indicates he's saying it over and over again, trying to persuade him to come and help. You can almost feel the pain and the emotion 
And the urgency in this man's voice says, my little girl is dying, please come help her. They have to hurry because it's not that she might die. She is dying. If Jesus does nothing, the breaths that she is now taking will be her last. And we find here that Jesus has compassion on this man. It says that Jesus went with him. He isn't too busy. He isn't too tired, despite the very busy night and day that he's just had. He doesn't say, why don't you go ask some of your respected rabbi friends? Why don't you go talk to some of those Pharisees that get the best seat in your synagogue? Maybe they can help you. No. He is moved by this man's request. He goes with him, and the crowd follows. But as they're on their way, something happens that sort of halts this procession. They're interrupted in verse 42. We'll start at the end of verse 42. It says, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And this is more than just bumping into people once in a while. This is, this is an intensely packed street. Um, I had the opportunity years and years ago. I was in uh, another country in South America. I was on a missions trip. And the missionary there said, hey, there's actually a really big soccer game tonight. Do you want to go? And it was the championship for the Brazilian league. It was like their Super Bowl. I have never been in a more crowded facility in my life. There were no fire marshals there. If there were, I'm sure there would have been issues because it was so packed and pressed in. It was a crushing experience, shoulder to shoulder, chest to back, piled into this facility. And I imagine that's probably what it was like as all of these people want to be near to Jesus. They want to see what he's going to do. And they are pressing, crushing into him as they're trying to force their way down the street. They're trying to get to this man's house, trying to help this little girl. But as they're going down the street, the people press around him. Look in verse 43. Here's the interruption. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. This woman comes onto the scene. And unlike Jairus, her name is not given. She is a nobody. She is unknown. But her condition is truly heartbreaking. She's experiencing, first of all, physical suffering. Luke, who is a physician, by the way, writing this book, tells us that she's been having this constant hemorrhage for 12 years. She's losing blood. And this would have been more than just an inconvenience. It would have obviously made her very physically weak. Perhaps it was even painful. We don't know for sure. It could have been even dangerous. Blood loss can be fatal. The loss of iron and, and hemoglobin and other important things, blood obviously is essential to our health. Her health is deteriorating. And it appears that she's been dealing with this condition, Luke says, for 12 years, which is a long time. In fact, that's just as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. But it's not just a physical hardship. She's also experiencing financial hardship. Luke tells us that she spent all her living on physicians and could not be healed by anyone. She's destitute. She spent all her money. But they could not help her in the least. In fact, Mark tells us in his gospel that these doctors' crude attempts to help her had actually made things worse. She's worse now than when she first started trying to get help. Her health is worse, and she's broke. 
Not only is she physically suffering, she's financially experiencing hardship. She's also spiritually considered to be unclean in a ritual, ritualistic sense, a ceremonial sense. The nature of her illness meant, according to the law of Leviticus, that she was considered constantly unclean. She would not have been allowed into the temple. She would not have been allowed to go into the synagogue. She was banished, as it were, from the presence of God and from the gathering of God's people. She is experiencing this spiritual hardship. And on top of that, there's a social cost. She could not touch anyone or be touched by anyone because her uncleanness, that ceremonial status of being unclean, would be transferred to anything or anyone that she touched. That made her participation in normal life, normal society, nearly impossible. She would have been relationally alienated, alone, and outcast. So 12 years of that kind of suffering, physical, spiritual, social, financial, that would have made anyone desperate. And this woman definitely is. But she believes that Jesus can heal her. And so she decides to take a big risk and approach Jesus. If she's found out, if she accidentally touches other people in this crowded city street and makes them unclean, there could be some consequences. But like Jairus, she's desperate, and her faith propels her towards the only one who can save. She is intent on getting to Jesus. When she presses her way through the crowd, she gets to him, and Luke says she touches the fringe, verse 44, of his garment. This probably speaks about the tassels that would have been at the four corners of the, the outer garment that was thrown over the shoulder. This was a custom that faithful Jews um, followed. It's rooted in the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 12. It was a sign of dedication to God. And as she touches these tassels on the fringe of Jesus' garment, Luke tells us she is instantly and totally healed. The pain is gone. Her strength is restored. And she knows it. She is aware. And Jesus also knows it. Look in verse 40, 45. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Jesus knows what's just happened, and he's not going to let it go unnoticed. And so he asks, who was it that touched me? And obviously the disciples are a little bit confused. They're being pressed in on every side, and they're trying to, you know, Peter's probably the lead blocker in this, in this football play, I would imagine. He's at the front. He's trying to move people out of the way and make room for Jesus to come through. And they're a little bit confused. I mean, everybody's bumping into you. We're in a hurry. You want to stop and figure out who was it that bumped into you? But Jesus ignores Peter's answer because he's not really asking Peter. He already knows it was her. And he's trying to draw her out. He's calling for this woman to step forward. And I think he's doing this for at least two reasons. Jesus wants this woman to step into the limelight because he wants to draw attention to the reality of her healing. He wants everyone else to know what the woman knows and what he knows, that she is now healed. He wants to publicly announce that she is not just healed, but that she is now clean. He wants to publicly remove the stigma and, and the, 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 the scarlet letter, as it were, that would have branded this woman. For 12 years, she's suffered this condition. He wants to make it public. 
that she is now healed. But he doesn't want to only draw attention to her healing. I think he especially wants to draw attention to her faith because others needed to learn a lesson from her example, especially Jairus. So he asks again, a second time, who is it? He says, someone touched me, verse 46. I perceive that power has gone out from me. And so we find this revelation in verse 47. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. I sort of wonder if Jesus was actually looking right at this woman when he's asking, who is it that touched me? Because Luke says that, that she saw that she was not hidden. She's trying to hide, trying to be anonymous, trying to sneak away, and Jesus is looking right at her. Who is it who touched me? He's saying, come on, you can tell everyone. Tell them what just happened. And so now it's her turn to fall at Jesus' feet. We saw last week the man possessed by demons falls at Jesus' feet. At the beginning of this story, Jairus comes and falls at Jesus' feet. Now it's her turn, and she's trembling as she tells the whole story. Is Jesus going to be angry? Is the crowd going to condemn her? Because for a woman to initiate contact with a man, a man that's not her husband, especially a notable rabbi like Jesus, that would have been scandalous. For an unclean person like her to knowingly um, pass on her uncleanness to a religious man, this is unheard of. So she's trembling. She's not sure what the reception is going to be. But I love how Jesus responds to her. The one who rebuked the wind and the waves, the one who commanded the demons to depart, he addresses this humble and fearful woman. And look what he says. Verse 48, he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He calls her daughter. Can you imagine how those how these words, how this must have landed on her. I have two daughters. In fact, one of my daughters is 12. So I can sort of relate with Jairus in the situation. But he calls this woman daughter. Those of you who have daughters, how do you feel about your daughter? I'm a dad. I love my girls. I would do anything uh, for them. I care deeply about their well-being. And my daughters know that they can come to me at any time. I'm not going to push them away. I always want to give them my best. And I'm just a regular dad. There's nothing that special about that. Jesus, who's far greater than any father in this room, looks at this woman and calls her daughter. This is a word of tenderness to her. It's a word of affirmation. And he's letting her know that he is pleased with her. He is pleased that she has come to him. He is pleased that she believed that he could heal her. She, he is pleased that she took that risk to come to him and, and to find in him the solution for her needs. She's taken a great risk in touching him and another risk in admitting it out loud. And she's met with healing and with love. He calls her daughter. And he says, your faith has made you well. Literally, if you look in the Greek language, your faith has saved you. This is the same word that is also used to describe the great spiritual salvation that Jesus provides for us. He's drawing attention. As he gives this affirmation to this woman, he's teaching her something, but he's saying it in front of the whole crowd. Your faith has saved you. He wanted Jairus to see her faith. 
This isn't a powerful object lesson for everyone there. He wants Jairus to see it. He wants the disciples to see it. He wants the crowd to see it. And he wants us to see it as well. Her faith has made her well. Not because there is power in and of her faith itself. In fact, her faith is a little bit even muddled. She kind of has some superstitious ideas about touching his garment. Maybe there's power in his clothing. She she doesn't even have all the details ironed out. But she knows Jesus is not like anyone else. And she believes Jesus can heal. You see, Jesus is the object of her faith. And it is the object of faith that has power, not faith itself. You can have misdirected faith, even if it's sincere. You can have misinformed faith, but only faith in Jesus is able to save because he is the only one who has the power to save. It is the object of our faith that saves us. And this miracle, as she trusted in Jesus and experienced this healing, this miracle was meant to confirm visibly what Jairus had already believed, that Jesus can heal, right? Isn't that why Jairus came? Jairus came seeking Jesus when he got back into town because he needed Jesus to heal his daughter. And Jesus is confirming right in front of Jairus' nose, I can do exactly what it is that you are hoping I can do. His final statement to this woman, he calls her daughter. He says, your faith has made you well. He then tells her, go in peace. Go in peace. She can have peace knowing that she is healed Her suffering is over, but she can also have peace knowing that Jesus is pleased with her, that he cares for her, that everything is right between them. So she doesn't need to hide or be secretive. He says, go in peace. He sends her away, not with a rebuke, but with a blessing. But this tender and triumphant moment is interrupted because there's bad news that arrives. There's this tragedy in verse 49. While he was still speaking, so right in the middle of this tender moment, Someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Their delay, this interruption, the healing of this woman and then Jesus stopping to to call her forward and then the dialogue between them and all that explanation, it's actually led to the death of the child and it's too late now to help her. Or is it? In contrast to the woman's faith, we find that this report saying that that your daughter has died, do not trouble the teacher any longer, that report is actually tinged with unbelief. That report assumes that while Jesus could have maybe healed the girl while she was sick, he can't help her now. You have to wonder, had these people not heard the report about the widow's son. Remember back in chapter seven, Jesus had raised a widow's son to life. He'd interrupted a funeral possession and laid his hand on the casket and raised this boy to life. And that was in the town of Nain, about 20 miles away from Capernaum. And chapter seven tells us that the report of what had happened had spread far and wide. Had they not heard about the fact that Jesus can actually raise people from the dead? Perhaps this messenger didn't believe it. Or perhaps he didn't believe that Jesus would help. Maybe it wasn't worth his time and his effort. Yeah, I know Jesus can do that, but he's not going to do that for you. That's too much of a hassle for him. Well, in any case, Jesus ignores the messenger's report. 
There's no such thing as troubling Jesus with our grief and our suffering and our need. And it's definitely not too late for Jesus to act. The delay with this woman had not ruined his plans. In fact, it fit perfectly with what Jesus was intending to do. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 50. On hearing this, Jesus answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. If you can sort of imagine this like a movie, the camera now pans back to Jairus. Remember Jairus? He's the dad with the dying daughter. He's the one who's watching this interruption, and he just heard this news as well. What now? Well, Jesus gives the answer. He says, do not fear. Perhaps Jairus feared that Jesus had forgotten about his situation. Perhaps he feared that it was too late. You know, Jesus had originally agreed to go with him and to help him. Maybe he changed his mind. But Jesus says, no, do not fear. My intention is to restore her health. This woman's 12-year illness was not too hard for me. And this little girl is not beyond my help either. Do not fear. He tells him instead, only believe. And again, the tense of the verb here is important because it actually indicates an ongoing belief. I mean, Jairus did believe, right? That's why he came and asked Jesus for help in the first place. That's why he's walking with Jesus, going down the street towards his house. And Jesus says, keep believing. Don't stop now. Keep trusting in me. Keep relying on me. Keep looking to me expectantly and eagerly because I am going to act. You once believed I could heal. Do you still believe that I can help? You see, Jesus has just commended the faith of this woman. I mean, this woman is now right in front of Jesus, right next to Jairus. So there's sort of three of them standing here in the middle of the crowd. And Jesus has just commended her faith. He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. He now tells this man to believe and she will be made well. The word for faith and belief have the same root. There's kind of a word play here in Greek. It's the noun and the verb of the same word. Her faith is belief. And his believing means to have faith. So there's sort of like an, an echo of what he's just said to the woman. As he tells her, do not, or he tells him now, do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. The same word for salvation, for restoration, that this woman had just experienced, Jesus said, I'm going to do it for your daughter. He says she will be well, which is, listen, a promise. Jesus gives a promise to Jairus. Jesus had every intention of meeting the need. So they arrive at the house in verse 51. It says, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. They arrive and they're greeted with the weeping and the wailing of professional mourners. Jewish custom was to hire people to come and to mourn and to even play uh, sad music as part of their ritual for uh, burial. And Jesus interprets their ritual and challenges their assumption that it was too late. He says, you guys actually got it wrong. Your weeping and your mourning is premature. He refers to her death as sleeping. It says, do not mourn, do not weep, because she is not dead, but sleeping. 
He refers to his, her death as sleeping, not because she's literally asleep or even in a coma, but because she's not going to permanently rest in this condition. He says, listen, I'm going to wake her up. He's not denying the reality of her death. He's denying the finality of her death, saying this isn't over. I'm about to wake her up. But the mourners, in verse 53, turn to scoffers. They stop their crying and they laugh at Jesus. They don't believe he can wake her up. So he sends them all away. He sends everyone away except for his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and then obviously the girl's family. These unbelieving scoffers are not going to have the privilege of a front row seat to see what he is about to do. And then we see what Jesus does in verse 54. Taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Again, imagine what this is like. I know this story is probably familiar for many of you, but put yourself in the shoes, the sandals of these parents. As you enter the room, there's your daughter. She's not breathing. Her color is gone. She's turned cold. And there's no noise. It's silent. There's no mourning, no wailing. He sent everyone away. But the silence is pregnant with anticipation. Jesus, what are you going to do? And notice here, Jesus tenderly takes her by the hand. And I love this because once again, Jesus is not worried at all about the ceremonial law. This unclean woman had touched him earlier. It was no problem. Now Jesus touches a dead body, a corpse, which according to Jewish custom would have made him ceremonially unclean. But he's not worried about that at all. He takes her by the hand. This is his compassion on display once again. He didn't have to touch her could have said the word. He didn't even have to enter the house, but he did. This is personal, and he takes her by the hand. And then once again, the one who spoke to the storm, the one who commands the demons, now speaks, and he brings this child to life. Child, arise. Arise, a simple command. She opens her eyes, and the first thing this little girl sees is the face of Jesus. Her parents are standing there amazed. Their jaws are, are probably hitting the floor. And now Jairus understands why Jesus has said to him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. Jesus then says, you guys should probably go get her some food. She hasn't eaten in a long time. And again, we see Jesus' concern for her. He's caring for her needs and it's not only proof that she's truly alive, it's also proof that she's well. Dead people don't eat, and sick people usually don't eat either. Jesus has not only reversed her death, he's banished the illness that had caused her death as well. All of that is gone. And the girl is up and at it once again. It says she got up at once, and so he directs that something should be given her to eat. She's ready for supper. And the parents are completely amazed. Just like the disciples in the boat who were fearful and they said, who then is this that he commands the wind and the waters and they obey him? Just like the demons trembled before Jesus and they said, I know who you are. You're the son of the most high God. Just like the pig herders and the residents of the Decapolis, they were terrified of Jesus and asked him to leave. Everyone who sees Jesus act is filled with amazement and with fear and the parents are no different. It says her parents are amazed. They're amazed. They're overwhelmed with awe. And yet Jesus says, don't tell anyone. 
Tell no one what has happened here. While the man that, that Jesus just the day before had delivered from all those demons, remember, Jesus had told him, I want you to go back home and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. He was supposed to tell everyone, but now they're back in a Jewish region. They're not in a Gentile land anymore. And too much attention to Jesus' miracles, if it wasn't connected to a right understanding of his message, that could have led to the wrong conclusion. It would have caused problems. Jesus said, it's too soon for all of Israel to get excited about me being the Messiah because they don't understand what kind of Messiah I am. They don't understand that I came to suffer and die on the cross. So for now, I want you to keep this to yourself. So Jesus leaves quietly. The family eats dinner with their daughter. And the disciples have learned an important lesson about the necessity of faith. Again, there's two healings, two stories here, but one point. It's faith in the compassionate power of Jesus. And they've just seen an illustration of it in the woman with the hemorrhage. They've seen her believe and be healed. And now they've seen Jesus teach on it and demonstrate it again with Jairus. They've heard these powerful words from their master. Do not fear, only believe. As we think about what this story means for us today, I want to present to you just three principles for your consideration. I think there's three principles that emerge from this. I know some of you are note takers and you're like, okay, what are the points? Because I didn't see any. We've walked through that story. But here's what I want you to take home. Three principles. The first is this. Number one, our faith is in a powerful Jesus. Our faith is in a powerful Jesus. This fits completely with the preceding narratives. Driving out the demons, calming the storm, everything Jesus is doing displays his power. It's an emphatic demonstration of his authority. So don't miss that. Jesus is the king over all. And his kingdom, when it comes, it's going to result in chaos being put into order, the enemy being subjugated and defeated. And it's also going to result in his people being restored. That's what the authority of Jesus accomplishes. And so our faith rests in that power. Our faith is in a powerful Jesus. Remember, Luke writes this gospel for a man named Theophilus so that he might have certainty about the things he had been taught. That's Luke chapter 1, verse 4. These stories are meant to challenge our unbelief. They are meant to challenge our fear. And it's meant to strengthen our faith. Do you think that you are too far gone for Jesus to actually help? For Jesus to actually change you? Do you think it's too late? Do you think there's some sort of limit to the mighty reach of the grace of Christ? Look at what Jesus did. This story is meant to increase our confidence that there is no limit to his power. Our faith is in a powerful Jesus. But secondly, our faith is in a personal Jesus. A personal Jesus. Think about it. These two individuals heard about Jesus and came to him. Both Jairus and the woman with the hemorrhage. And they didn't come to an idea. They didn't come to a movement. They came to a person. They came to a personal Christ. And Jesus didn't just interact with ideas and with forces and with nations. Jesus engaged with these individuals, with the woman, with Jairus, one-on-one. -on -one. And he showed them compassion. Jesus shows great compassion. He went with Jairus. 
He walked. He said, show me where your house is. I'll go with you. He called this woman daughter, showing tenderness and care to her. He takes the little girl by the hand, and then he's concerned that she gets something to eat. Our faith is in a personal Jesus who demonstrates compassion to individuals. And this is the same Jesus that caused the storm to cease, the same Jesus that caused the demons to tremble. Yes, he is powerful. Yes, he has authority. Yes, he is supreme. Yes, he is magnificent. But he's also tender and compassionate. He's not just able to help, being powerful. We also see here that he desires to do so. There's a personal care that we find in the heart of Jesus. Listen, if your view of Jesus Christ is missing one of those two truths, if you're either missing the power of Jesus or the compassion of Jesus, then you have a distorted understanding of who Christ is. We need both of those things joined together. If you have this distorted view that's either missing his supreme power or his personal compassion, then your faith is going to suffer because of it. Your faith will be weak. You'll either see Jesus as powerful and majestic, but you'll be tempted to shrink back. You'll be tempted to cower. You will be convinced that Jesus doesn't have time for you, that he wouldn't care about your needs. So you won't come to him like Jairus. You won't seek him out like the woman with the hemorrhage. You'll have the wrong view of Jesus. Or perhaps you'll make the other mistake. You'll, you'll see Jesus as a sympathetic figure, someone who wishes you well and has lots of compassion, but perhaps you'll fear that he really isn't able to help you. You'll say things like, it's too late. Don't trouble the teacher any longer. You might even laugh like the mourners at the house because someone else thinks there's still time for Jesus to work. Listen, we need both of these truths together. Faith in a powerful Jesus, but also faith in a personal Jesus. Listen, if you sense your need for Christ today, this is a call to you. Do not fear, only believe. Don't let Jesus pass you by today. This is your chance to reach out to him and to experience both his compassion and his power to save. So look to him in faith. Believe. Believe that he loves you. Believe that he is the son of God. Believe that his death on the cross can atone for your sins. And believe that his resurrection means eternal life for you if you will trust him and entrust your soul to him. You might say, what is it exactly that we are supposed to believe? Does this story mean that, that any of my problems can be fixed if I just have enough faith? You know, there are some who will twist a story like this, and it's important that we get this right. Some people will say that you need to believe for something. Believe for that raise. We're believing in God for healing. We're believing in him for some sort of answer to prayer. Some, some sort of a name it and claim it kind of a faith. Is that what Jesus is calling for? Is that what this story is meant to teach it? to teach us. I don't believe Jesus is calling us here to believe for something. He's calling us to believe in someone. There's a difference. He's calling us to believe specifically in him, in Jesus. And the, bel the belief we have in Jesus is specifically belief in his promises. Believe in his promises. Our faith is in the power of Jesus 
We trust that he is able. Our faith is in the person of Jesus. We trust that he cares for us. But our faith is also in the promise of Jesus. That's, that's the third principle that we find here. It's faith in a powerful Jesus. It's faith in a personal Jesus. It's faith in the promise of Jesus. We trust in what his word says to us. When he says to Jairus, yes, I will come with you. Show me where your house is because I'm going to help you. Then Jairus should not fear. He should believe. He should believe that Jesus is going to follow through on what he says he's going to do. When Jesus shows up and says, do not weep because she's only sleeping and I'm going to wake her up, then believe in the word of Jesus. Believe that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. So Jesus has not said that he's going to fix every one of your problems today. Jesus has not promised that he will heal us today of every illness and every pain. He's not going to restore every broken relationship today. He's not going to relieve every suffering and rescue from every trial today. That's not what he has promised. But he has promised other things. So what has Jesus promised to you? Well, Jesus promises us redemption. He promises that we can have peace with God through faith in Christ. He promises us spiritual wholeness. These healings are illustrations of a spiritual salvation that God promises to all who believe. Those who place their faith in Christ are reconciled with God. He will call us sons and daughters when we believe in his promise. Redemption means that he purchases us out of slavery to sin. Redemption means that he rescues us from darkness, that he makes us spiritually alive, that he adopts us into his family, that he promises us an inheritance, that he gives us his spirit. These are the promises of God. He promises us redemption. With that comes a promise of resurrection. Many of us have buried loved ones. We've had to say goodbye. You say, wow, I wish Jesus would walk into my house into that hospital room and make someone alive. Listen, Jesus actually promises something better because this resurrection was temporary, but the resurrection Jesus promises all who believe is an eternal resurrection. He promises to raise us up to an incorruptible kind of a life, a, a glorified body that will never die again. He promises that everyone who comes to him will never die in a permanent, eternal sense. These miracles, this miracle of resurrection foreshadows our own resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about how Jesus, when he comes, will raise us up to an imperishable body. That's an incredible promise. It's a promise that we can believe in. He promises us redemption, resurrection, and he also promises restoration. Look at what the result is of Jesus' miracles in this text. This woman got her life back. This family got their daughter back. Just like the demoniac we saw last week, he got his dignity back. Look, in the end, when, when God's plan comes together, when, when Jesus acts in power, he's going to restore all things. All things in heaven and on earth. There'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more sin. In Revelation 21, he says, behold, I am making all things new. 
He's not just coming to fix a problem or two. He's coming to set the whole created order right. It's restoration. And these miracles are a little preview, a little foretaste of a much grander miracle that Christ is going to accomplish one day. And friends, this is what Christ promises you. He promises you redemption and resurrection and a great restoration that is coming and that you can have a part in it. Your part is simply to believe, to believe in those promises. That's the point that this story is meant to teach, that the compassionate power of Jesus calls for faith. Trust in the power of Jesus. Trust in this personal Jesus who cares for you and trust in his promises, these great, grand, glorious promises. That is what calls for our faith. The compassionate power of Jesus is a call. Will you believe? Stories like this, they show us who Jesus really is, don't they? It shows us what he is able to do. It shows us what his heart is like. These are his promises. And what Jesus said to Jairus that day, he says to you today, do not fear, only believe. Lord Jesus, thank you that as we look in your word, we're given a glimpse of your glory and your power but we're also given insight into your compassion, into your heart, your tenderness, and your care for us, and your purpose to meet our deepest needs, to redeem us from sin, to raise us to eternal life, and to restore all things. Lord, we are filled with longing and anticipation when we think about that day. We're thankful that you know we live in a world that is right now still beset with sin and death and suffering. You also, like us, are acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that you offer us through your word. We thank you for this call to faith and the revelation of your glorious purpose. And I pray that today our faith would be strengthened, that we would look to you, believing in you, resting in your care and your love, hoping in your promises. Lord Jesus, be glorified and strengthen our faith today. We pray this in your name, amen.